Hi, everyone. It's Dana here. I'm the editor at Kerning Cultures. We're taking this week off to finish up a few episodes that we're super excited about, and you'll hear them very soon. So this week, we wanted to revisit one of our favorite past episodes. This one originally came out in 2019, and it's about something, honestly, before reporting this story, we'd never really thought about before. It's a little bit of a morbid question, but it's what happens when you die in a country that isn't your own? What happens to your body? In the UAE, the answer to that is complicated. So producer Alex Atak spoke to two families who had to go through the painful experience and followed some volunteers that helped them through the process. It's a beautiful story, one of my favorites, and I really hope you enjoy it. Here it is. A few weeks ago, KC producer Alex Atak and I got on a call because he'd been working on a new story. Okay, so maybe should I just start by telling you how I found out about the story? Yes, tell me. Take Start at the beginning. So uh, I was having a conversation with my friend and he'd lived in the UAE his whole life, brought up in the UAE. His dad moved there way back in the day, like I think pre-70s kind of thing. And his dad had died recently and um, he was buried in Dubai. And he was telling me that he'd been at his dad's graveyard that morning, um, uh, replacing the flowers on his grave. And then it got me thinking, like, I've never, like, actually seen a graveyard in Dubai. And I've never had to think about death in Dubai. Alex, by the way, is a British citizen who was brought up in Dubai. I think I I wouldn't have known what I was going to do if somebody died in my family. You know, if my dad, my dad lived there, my mum lived there. And so I, I would and if they'd have died, I wouldn't have had a clue what the next steps would have been. So it's making you think like, well, what happens when we die here? Like, where do we go? Yeah, com- completely. I guess what, what I got interested in with this story was like um, when a country has such a kind of big population of foreigners and there's lots of different religions, lots of different nationalities, um, how do they deal with their dead? In the UAE, more than 80% of the population are foreigners, which means there's a high demand for something called repatriation. To repatriate is to return to your home country, and repatriating somebody's body after they die in the UAE is a complicated process. As we learned reporting the story, it's much easier if you have someone guiding you through that process. There are agencies that will help you, but they're expensive. And then there are also regular citizens who volunteer their time to help people repatriate their loved ones. They're known as death case volunteers. And today, a few stories about getting back home after we die. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Could you introduce yourself? I'm Zaki. I've been in Dubai for 10 years and I've experienced a lot in this country and one of that experiences was a tragedy. So Zaki's from Hyderabad in India, and in March 2018, he had just got married. I got married here in Dubai, 
and my wife's parents they flew over from Hyderabad to Dubai and his mother-in-law and his father-in-law uh, they were still in town after the wedding a month into our marriage in March it was a saturday 3rd of march if i remember correctly we are in my car we're driving to drop my brother to his place in albarsha and my wife gets a call on her phone and it's her sister and she she starts crying immediately i immediately knew something is wrong her mother had collapsed suddenly uh, on the other side of town she was on her way to the cinema to watch a movie when it happened and then we tell her to call the ambulance immediately and that's what they did and i turned my car around and we headed off to sharjah i think that's the fastest i've driven ever we reached there in like 15 20 minutes and what we see is she's being loaded uh, into an ambulance we knew that something was wrong because because the looks on the paramedics faces that they were trying everything they were doing CPR they were even giving her some intra uh, IV injections through her arm and nothing was working so we could see that and we had some idea that something's not right she is she's in a very bad situation the ambulance took her off to the hospital and zaki and his family they were following behind in their own cars everyone was at the hospital me my wife my father-in-law my sister-in-law her husband and we spent the night there we just slept on the on the seats in the waiting area outside the icu and we couldn't even sleep we were just lying there looking at each other and then uh, the next morning we we went in to see her uh, in the icu she was she was life uh, lifeless still but we could see her breathing through the machines that were connected to her her eyes still shut closed sometime in the afternoon um zaki says an alarm signal went off and a bunch of doctors rushed down the corridor towards them and unfortunately that signal was for her and then the doctors went in and after like 30 minutes they called us in to break the news that she's gone when we came back to our senses when we had finally realized what's happened there was uh yeah there was a nurse who came to me and sh- she told me that uh, there's someone in the admin office who would like to speak to me so he went down to this office uh, which was on the ground floor of the hospital um he paid the medical bill uh, filled out some paperwork and then the guy at the office told him basically uh, it's up to you now whatever you'd like to do with uh, your mother-in-law's body you've got to figure it out for yourself so at that moment in time we had my mother-in-law dead her body uh, lying in the hospital and my father-in-law wanted her to be buried in india he was like i want to visit her grave and i want her to be buried in india so we we said okay we don't know how it works but if you want her to be buried in india we'll do that we'll figure it out uh the first thing they did was probably the first thing that any of us would do in this situation we all started googling how to bury a body in the way <laughs> everyone was doing their own research calling friends looking over the internet and what not and by the evening uh someone gave zaki a phone number and told him give this guy a call he can help and they said this is ashraf he does this he he is a professional who 
who is an expert in you know handling death cases especially of indians and yeah i gave him a call the same day she passed away i i gave him a call at night i think it was around 10 at night he didn't introduce himself to me properly like i do this every time i'm a professional he, he didn't say any of that he's like okay i'll do it i'll do it just relax he was a symbol of reassurance that things are going to work out for us typically foreign embassies aren't responsible for repatriating the bodies of their citizens you need to go to them to get paperwork and you need to go to them to cancel visas and passports and all that kind of thing but typically they won't be the ones guiding you through the process but with the indian consulate they have a list on their website of 10 uh, what they call death case volunteers these are regular citizens who basically help guide people through the process of repatriating their loved ones there are about 10 people on the list but probably the best known one is ashraf tamarashari that's the guy that zaki called it took a little while because he's so busy but um we found a 45 minute slot when he was free and my colleagues ashfana noha and i we went to meet him at his home in ajman The walls of his apartment are just full of these awards. He has these two huge cabinets, kind of like you'd see in a trophy room at a sports club, and they're just full of trophies and medals and certificates that he's received in recognition of his volunteer work. There are drawings of him that people have given as gifts. Um at the back there's a photo of him shaking hands with Narendra Modi. So he met Narendra Modi who is the current prime minister of India in 2015. Ashraf's first language is Malayalam, so we spoke to him with a translator who was Ashfana. That's whose voice you're going to hear. So he came here about 20 years ago. He got a job in the seaport, so that's why he moved out here. Ashraf is from Kerala in India. He moved to the UAE in the early 2000s and worked at the docks. Now he owns a car garage with his brother that's still what he earns a living from. He's holding like this big stack of papers it's like the width of a uh, like a phone book and it's all the death cases he dealt with in the last four months. So we we interviewed him in April and between January and April that year he'd already dealt with 200. This is 2019. Just like three months. Zoralla da odnoralla. This is a person. This is a person. This is a person. Of all the death case volunteers Ashraf is probably um the best known. He's been featured in like articles. Uh, he had a documentary made about him. He's received awards from institutions around the world. And because of that he's probably the most in demand. I was just wondering how many times do you think your phone is going to go off throughout our conversation? That's Noha Fayed. She co-produced this story with me. And there's another one I can hear somewhere else. There's one over there. So there's four devices in this room actually. Between his three phones, he gets about 150 calls a day and through the night as well. That's basically how the process starts. Someone calls him to tell him that they have a death case that they need him to deal with. Right at the start of the process, there's a lot of paperwork and documentation to get out of the way. You need a death certificate from the hospital and then you have to go to various government offices, the police, the Ministry of Health. Uh, all of these places are in different parts of Dubai so it's a long few days in the car driving around getting it all done 
This is Zaki again. I had all the documents with me in one big bag, and whatever they asked for, I just used to take it out of the bag and give it to them. And so once you have all of this, uh, you got to go to the embalming center. Embalming, yeah, is a procedure they do to the dead body that uh, that helps uh, preserve it. It helps the body not to decompose. My father-in-law was right next to me all through this, and yeah, he was heartbroken. Like he couldn't believe all this is happening, and because he he had come to this country for a wedding, and he is flying out with his dead wife. So uh, words can't express what he was going through at the time, but he was holding it off really well. We could see uh, he's holding back tears. He didn't want to break into tears in front of everyone while everyone is, you know, running around doing the paperwork and doing whatever is necessary to have her repatriated as quickly as possible. By the time the embalming's done, um, the body can be transported to the airport, which um, happens in a specialized ambulance, kind of like a hearse, which um, Ashraf helped them to arrange. The plan was for Zaki to fly out on the same plane as his mother-in-law's body and for the rest of the family to follow shortly after. I flew out the Sharjah airport with the body and landed in Hyderabad and they flew out from Dubai airport and landed in Hyderabad. So that was the, the last time we saw Ashraf at the cargo terminal at Sharjah airport. Let me take a second to explain the costs of all of this. We spoke to a few people who work at burial grounds or crematoriums. Um, Adult burial at Holy Trinity Church is about 1,000 dirhams in all. That's about $270. Cremation is about $1,300, so $1,300. With repatriation, if you're paying for an agency to, to do everything for you, it depends on the destination. But uh, for countries in Asia, because they're closer, it's about $4,000. For Europe, it can go up to about $6,000. We reached out multiple times to the best-known agency in Dubai to speak to us for the story, but they were never available for an interview. If Ashraf or any other death case volunteer is the one guiding you through the process, you'll pay around $1,600, and that goes on admin fees and ambulance and flights and embalming fees. If a family member that they're helping can't afford it, uh, death case volunteers do receive some money from charities and philanthropists uh, to cover some of the costs involved with repatriation. But Ashraf told us that he doesn't take a cut, like he doesn't take any money for his time. So he's saying that if if he took money from people, even if it is like little bits, he would get two lakhs. Dirham ana rupee ana. Two lakhs is about two hundred thousand dirhams. That's like how much people keep offering him, but he doesn't want to do it because he thinks this is his calling in life. We wanted to pay him out of good gesture. My father-in-law was very in, uh, insisting at one time that he takes something as a gift, but he said, no, I cannot take that. And he did not even explain why, but my father-in-law was, just give him, just ask him to take this. Just, But I was like, no, he doesn't want that. He was like, no, thank you, thank you, I cannot take this, thank you, that's it. So this is why Ashraf is so high in demand, um, why he gets about 150 phone calls a day. He doesn't charge for his help. Ashraf is the best known, but he's not the only repatriation volunteer uh, in the UAE. We've been trying to get in touch with another guy from that list on the Indian consulate website. His name is C.P. Matthew. 
but he uh, wasn't answering his phone whenever we called. And then one day when we were trying to reach him, his son Amal answered. He said his dad doesn't usually do interviews, but uh, he, Amal, he'd be up for speaking to us. So one morning we arranged to meet him at the city centre in Dira. Uh, we couldn't find anywhere to record, so we sat in our car and interviewed him there. Just so I can get some levels, can you tell me what you've done today? Um, I've woken up today, uh, went to church, I boarded the bus and I came to the mall. I uh, met up with a friend, I had some ice cream, and then I waited for you guys. How have you done so much before 10 a.m.? <laughs> I don't you went, know. You like, went to church and you've met up with a friend and yeah. you've done all this stuff. Yeah. What time did you get up? Like five? Yeah, I, I, I just don't like being late in general, okay. so I just really come early. I should say he asked his dad for permission before speaking to us and he said it was cool. My name is Amal Joseph Matthew. I'm 17 years old. I'm from the Emirates National School, Sharjah. And after this program, I have my graduation. I will go to my school at 1.30 and I will graduate. So I have that. And I come from India, Kerala. And who's your dad? My dad is Mr. C.P. Matthew and I'm proud about it. Can you describe your dad a bit for me? Can you tell me what his character is like? What kind of man he is? Okay, so... My dad's name is Mr. Matthew. He's originally from India. And uh, growing up, as far as what my grandmother and my grandparents told me, he was a very giving man. There's this book about Dubai from 2010, and Amal's dad is mentioned briefly in that. The writer described him as um, a baby-faced man with the serene manner of a priest. He's not a priest. He's a volunteer with a charity called Valley of Love. Um, it's an NGO that's made up of social workers. They help people who are having financial issues and people having legal issues, uh, that kind of thing. But they also help with repatriation. And since he was young, Amal's dad has been taking him out with him when he does his work. I used to visit all of your jail, mental institutions and hospitals, labor camps. Uh, repatriation cases, dead bodies. So even even when I was young... You used to visit? Yeah, my dad used to take me along with all these. So if you're asking me who was with my dad as a co-pilot when he was individually, it was me. So he's been exposed to, like, death and bodies and, you know, embalming centres and crematoriums. He's been exposed to all of these things since he was young. But when I'm young, you know, you don't get the seriousness of what's going on when you're young. You just see these things and you have it in your head. So I think... I understood what was going on, but not the exact seriousness. Only later on, I understand, wow, that's what I witnessed. You spend a lot of time thinking about death? No, no. It's the last thing on the list. Like, you know, you have a bucket list and, you know, I want to go in a horror balloon, I want to go to Paris. In the end, you're like, I want to die. You don't write that in the first. It's going to happen when it's over. And that's it. Your curtain's going to close down and you can't pull it back up. You're dead, you're dead. That's it. He told me that uh, growing up, this is what a family dinner in his house would sometimes look like. Imagine this, Friday evening, everyone's home. It's just, you know, it's a weekend off and we're all sitting, having dinner. And I get a call. The phone would ring and like with Ashraf, on the other end of the line would be either the Indian consulate in Dubai or a friend or a family member of somebody who just died. And he'd be like, you know, Mr. Matthew, we have this case. Can you just please show up? And he'd be like, yeah, sure. It could be 12 in the morning, 4 in the evening. It could be my birthday, mom's birthday. He wouldn't matter. He'd get up from the table, uh, leave his food half finished and go upstairs to get dressed. And first they'd head to where the body was found because the charity he works for, they mostly deal with people who don't have family or a lot of people they know in the UAE. So the first thing that they'll have to do in a lot of these cases is uh, identify the body. So to begin with, you know, you cannot tell anyone if they're Bangladeshi or Pakistani by looking at their features or anything. So it's more of identifying the situation of where they're found. 
they'll walk around the area where they lived, um, showing photos of them to see if anybody recognizes them, basically trying to build up a picture of who they were, uh, where they were from, like any, any kind of information they can find about them. So we go there and we look around, you know, does anybody know this person here? We show on the photos. And then someone from there might tell, oh, he used to work there. He used to live in that labor room. So, you know, we go to that labor hall and we ask him, you know, do you know anybody? And they're all be like, oh, you know, his name is Suresh. He worked with me. What happened? And okay, so how, how often does this happen? Is this like a weekly, monthly thing? Like how often will your dad be called mm. to go and show a photo of somebody around and try and have to find out how, like who somebody was? So there's no set time for these calls. It could come anytime. Maybe he'd have cases on standby, you know, cases on cases on cases on standby, and he had to be doing all of that at once. Poor so it. it's the how fast you do it. So, you know, you get it, you tell it, and you got to find it. He told us that his dad literally goes to Kerala sometimes. He'll fly over there with the bodies, um, and he'll, he'll, he'll be the one breaking the news to the families because... You know, in some cases, these are families like they they don't have a they can't find a contact number for them. They live in, you know, very rural parts of India, very rural parts of Kerala, and um, they can't call them. Most of these people are from small villages. So, you know, you don't have a lot of cars or anything coming their way. It'll just be a village town with brick houses and stuff. And um, and then he's literally knocking on the door um, of of the family's house and telling them, you know, like, your your brother, your dad, your your husband has died in the UAE. If I'm at least one fourth of what a person that my dad was, I'd be, you know, really great. I'd be amazing. I'd be, and I'd be proud of myself. I give a pat on my back and say, "Well done, man. You made it." Hey guys, it's Hiba. A quick break from our story today because Kerning Cultures is an independent podcast company. And while we believe in sharing our stories with you freely, it does take money to produce these. If you'd like to support our work, consider becoming a member on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash kerningcultures to learn more. Tiers start at $5 a month, and patrons get really cool swag like stickers and tote bags. We'll put the link in this episode's description. Thank you. When we left off, we'd just spoken to Amal, who is the son of CP Matthew, a death case volunteer. So we've talked about death case volunteers and agencies, but you don't need help from either of these. Other families deal with everything on their own without any outside help. So around, what was it, maybe two, three years ago, um, my mom passed away. This is Max. Uh, we're not going to be using his real name or naming the country that he comes from. And we had to deal with this whole process of of repatriating her remains back back to our back to our country, back to our native country. His mom, uh, who had been living in the UAE for 25 years, uh, she had cancer, and they were taking care of her at home. So he says it wasn't sudden, but in the last two weeks of her life, uh, it got quickly worse. She had a certain type of cancer, which then, uh, what's the word for it, metastasized. So it spread basically to her brain. And so her condition would just deteriorate over the course of what, what was it, the last two weeks. So it got really, really, it accelerated really, uh, really quickly. And um, took her to the hospital. And then I think towards midnight of that same day, uh, she passed away. Max's family had already planned what they were going to do when his mum died. Um, there would be a cremation, and then they'd take her ashes 
back to her home country for a funeral. She wasn't verbal for most of the two weeks before she passed, so she couldn't really say anything or communicate uh, meaningfully. But we did, there was a point before when she was totally fine that she'd mentioned numerous times over her lifetime that you know, she'd, she'd much rather be cremated. Another reason why I wanted to get, take her back was because we wanted to bury her in the same place as her, as her family, in the same cemetery, right next door. And it's also, it, it really, really helped out with the logistics as well, as, as cynical as that might sound. Um, this sounds, this sounds a little bit uh, not, not great to say, but like, you know, finances were an issue because repatriating the body is also like another, I don't know, uh, 20,000 dirhams or something just, just to take the body on the plane. That's about five and a half thousand dollars. I mentioned it earlier, but it bears mentioning again here because it can be really expensive. Um, you know, costs are like quite a big factor in this situation. And the cost of cremating his mum's body in the UAE and then sending her ashes back to their home country for burial it can be about 80% less than repatriating a body. So that's what they set about doing. Um, the hospital morgue told them they had a week to sort everything out. Well, it was, it was really, really desperate, you know, because she was in the morgue this entire time. And she could only be there for so long, you know, we had to really, we had to, really move to, get, to get things done. I mean, I'm sure that they wouldn't have, you know, kicked us out or anything, but uh, they made it really, really obvious that, you know, we had to, we had to move, we had to make a move. So the family split up and started dealing with the logistics. In the week after she passed away, uh, there was this whole process, as I said, of, ge of gathering all the documents, cancelling the visas and the passports and all the stuff. It took them about a week to gather all the right paperwork so that they could go ahead with the cremation, which happened at the Indian Association. Max uh, is not Indian, by the way, but they're one of the only places in the UAE who do cremations. Well, you take the body to the, to the crematorium and wait for a bit for the municipality guy to come to open the, to open the actual cremation chamber. Uh, body goes in, and then you come back in a few hours. Do you remember what you did during that time that you were waiting? Just honestly, total silence. It's really, really surreal. But yeah, that was, that was one of the last steps. You know, after, when you, as soon as you get the urn, then you're free to go, free to do whatever you want. And then the next day, Max and his family got on a plane uh, back to their home country for his mum's funeral and burial. You're still struggling with these feelings for a long time afterwards. A lot of it was uh, denial, but that denial stretched out to, to like what, to months and months, you know, months afterwards. There are some some periods of time where you just wake up, and for like you know those while well, the sleep is still in your eyes, for like I don't know a few minutes, you still think that oh, mom's still there, you know, I'm gonna go say hi and all this. Could you kind of just tell me um, a little bit about why it was important that your mother-in-law was buried back home in Hyderabad as opposed to any other option? Well, the primary reason is uh, the sentiment of my father-in-law. This is Zaki again. Because he, he wanted to have the grave accessible to him. He wanted to vis visit the grave in person and pray and offer you know and offer flowers and stuff like that so he wanted to go 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 there every morning or whenever he wanted to he wanted to be close to the grave and because he lived in Hyderabad that's where he wanted to have her buried because that's his hometown that's his place we spoke to Max about this too um, being that tombstones are like a place of memorial and reflection we asked him if having his mum's tombstone in another country was in some way difficult for him. 
He told us that even though he doesn't have a place to visit her in the UAE, uh, the family still have a tradition that they do every year. So when my mother came back from the hospital, she got along with her an orchid. And you know an orchid is just a vine with several flowers on it. And throughout the course of what, these, these two weeks or something, the flowers would fall one by one. And then on the last day, right after she passed, right after we went to the, to the morgue, last flower fell. So now uh, every year before the anniversary of his mom's death, they buy an orchid. Every year, just before the anniversary, anniversary of her death, we buy an orchid, and we just hope that you know that it, it works out the same as, as before, that it goes on the on the on the actual anniversary, the last flower falls. If you were to pass in Dubai, that's producer Noha Fired um, asking Zaki this question. Would you choose the same? Mm. Would you be repatriated as well? Hmm, that's interesting. Well. Well, in my opinion, I am dead. I wouldn't mind <laughs> being buried anywhere. Uh, I would leave my dec- that decision to my family. Where would they want me buried? I don't mind being buried anywhere. Thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. It's not the easiest topic. So, um, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time. Yes, it's not an easy topic, yeah. Yeah, but I yeah that's that's why I did it. I, I want I want more people to think about death, and not in a weird way, but just th- think about you know like uh, to reflect on their lives and not to take their loved ones for granted. Just give them their time because nobody knows how much time each one of us has left in this world. So. Yeah, so just spend time with your parents if you can. Spend time with spend time with your wives, your kids as much as you can, or at least give them a call. That's all I want to say. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Actually, my mum called me earlier today, and I didn't answer it because I was busy working. But I feel like I should go and call her now. <laughs> <laughs> In case I lose you at the credits, I want to ask you first to leave a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. Ratings and reviews actually make a difference. They help boost our ranking in libraries so other listeners can find out about us. Today's episode was produced by Alex Atak and Noha Fayed, with editorial support from Dana Balut, Shahid Benyar-Odeh, Tamara Rasamni, and myself, Hiba Fisher. Fact-checking by Zina Duwader and sound design by Mohamed Khayzat. Bella Ibrahim is our marketing manager, and Nasri Atallah is our business development manager. We also have a lot of people to thank for their help with this story. Ashfana Hamids for helping us with translation, everybody whom we interviewed for this story, Zeki, Max, Ashraf, Thamar, Sherry, Viziadran, Amal Matthew, Ambika, and Ranji. To the people we spoke to at the Indian Association, thank you to CM Bashir, Sajad Sahir, Muhammad Mohideen, and Bejuji. And finally, thank you to Sunil at the Hindu Crematorium and Mr. Johnson at Holy Trinity Church. A huge thank you also to our new patrons supporting us on Patreon this month. Thank you to Fahed and Rob. You are making the production of these stories possible. If you're listening and you're interested in helping to support Kerning Cultures, consider making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash kerningcultures. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash kerningcultures. Until next time. 